Hello, I'm Tyler Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, before we get into today's topic, and before I introduce my co-host today, uh, there are a number of announcements. The first one is to remind everybody that up until, and including, June 25th, uh, we will be taking submissions for the More Than One Lesson top 50 movies of all time list. Uh, this is uh, completely listener submitted um, and compiled. If there, if there is uh, a tie, uh, I will be the one to make the decision uh, of what goes where. But aside from that, um, the, the hosts don't have any more power than the listeners. I submitted my 10. Has my co-host submitted his? No? Well, you've got until the 25th, my friend, and here's how you do it. You email me, Tyler, morethanonelesson.com, and you will submit 10 movies, ranked, please, from 10 to 1, one being, obviously, the best of those 10, and 10 being the worst of those 10. And then uh, each number has a point value. And so, uh, yeah, uh, please do that sooner rather than later. I don't, in the past, I've, when I've done this for Battleship Retention, you know, I get 25 to 30 entries on the day that, the, like, within the last hour that they're due. And I think, oh, come on, guys. I was almost done compiling, and now I have to, and now you've changed the list dramatically. Uh, but it's also kind of exciting to see that. But uh, anyway, uh, once that is compiled, we are going to be releasing uh, the list bit by bit, movie by movie, over the, over the course of uh, a week or two. And then we will be doing a full-on episode about the final list. I'm very excited, by the way, to see how this is going, because... As mentioned, we've done this sort of thing for Battleship Pretension before, and I was interested to see how, even though I host both shows, and there's a lot of crossover with our listenership, and uh, there's a significant number of listeners of More Than One Lesson that are not Christian, I was curious to know, once you introduce, even in an abstract way, once you introduce spirituality into this list, which is to say you now have Christian movie lovers contributing to the list. How does that change it? And it has changed it. Uh, number one, I won't say what it is, but number one right now, and I cannot imagine it going away, is not what I would have assumed for this show. But in other ways, it makes perfect sense. It's crazy and very exciting. Um, so... Please, uh, please contribute. I'm very excited to see how it goes, and I'm excited to show the list to you guys when it is finally finished. Uh, okay, a couple other announcements. There are some new review. There's a new review uh, of Finding Dory that Reed wrote, and then he also wrote a an article called "Thank God for Scary Movies," in which he once again voices a uh, full throated defense of horror movies. Uh, and then I also wanted to remind everybody last week. Reed, Josh, and I discussed the streaming service VidAngel. I'm actually rather proud of that episode, so if you have not listened to it, if you don't know what VidAngel is, please don't let that stop you from listening to the episode. We do explain what it is and uh, what we think of it. So go back and listen to that. So uh, with those announcements out of the way, I will bring in my co-host. He was the he was the guy missing last week. It's Robert Hornack. Robert, how are you doing? I'm good, Tyler. How are you? Oh, I'm doing okay. Uh, sorry, miss, sorry missed you last week. I apologize for, for not... I was out of town. What, yeah. What can I do? Yeah, it's off-putting. <laughs> you know, I demand I'm that my... world. 
Is that how it works? No, I was just yeah. I was where, just were, where were you? I was in Waco, Texas. <laughs> oh yeah, that's hardly in the Shreveport, world. Shreveport, Louisiana, uh, seeing family and helping my wife with uh, some job stuff she had to do. Sure. So yeah, uh, but I'm back. I'm here and glad to be here. Oh good. Yeah. Well, we're glad to have you, Robert. Thank you. So, okay. Can I, can I say something about the top 10? Sure. And I, I'm sure you mentioned this in other episodes as well, because uh, I remember you saying it, but um, a hang-up that I have with regard to these top 10 lists that people call for in these is, like, how do you define, or how do you, how do you figure out, like, what is your top 10? Like, is it your favorite top 10? Uh, or is best it, is preferable, but if uh, you see no difference between the two, then by all means. Yeah, I can't imagine people not seeing a difference between those two, but I guess there are those that would go... Uh, I, hmm. can, I can speak to the fact that there are people that do not uh, differentiate I, between I, those two. I do differentiate, and the fact I. that I, I could just go to my top ten that we did, like, what, a few months ago, where I, oh, yeah, I listed yeah. my top ten, I could just turn in that list... Yeah. And call them the best, but that yeah. I don't think that those are the best movies. I'm not going to put Star Trek Two on my <laughs> yeah. list of best films ever made, <laughs> right? But it is one of my favorite films that sure. I've ever seen. So, so this, it sounds like you got work to do. I do, and I, that's why I bring it up again. Is that I resent you because <laughs> I, yeah. I I want to do this because as a rotating co-host, I feel like I should. Sure. Um, and by the way, listeners, I am not privy to the number one. That's I, right. I don't know anything. So I, all these go to Tyler and Tyler alone. Yeah. Um, it's fun having this kind of power. Yeah. I can, his face is glowing with power. As for my co-host, a bit. I'm going to try, well, that's just my resting face. Uh, I'm going to try when, <clears throat> when we're unveiling the list piece by piece, mm-hmm. um, I'm going to try and save that top 10 so that, uh, and we did it, that's what we've been doing with BP, the last few top 50 lists we've done, so that the top 10 is revealed on the podcast. There will also ah. be like these little paragraphs, these little blurbs that we write. Those will go up as well, but I mm-hmm. want to try and save it for that. And that will also mean that I will, I think I'll hold off. Telling you and me? Telling the co-hosts uh, until we're, that until they've exciting. got a mic in front of them. You're sort of like a Price Waterhouse. Sure, like absolutely. Only you know until the envelope is open. That's right. And it is exciting to, I would say, virtually no one. But it's exciting to me, and that's all that matters. Very cool. Um, so, okay. So, what the movie we're talking about today, primarily, is Inside Lewin Davis, written and directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen. Now, here's the weird thing. One of the, the one of the themes that we'll be talking about is grief and how to deal with that, but also how to deal with tragedy. Now we had decided to talk about this before the shooting in Orlando. Um, this was on the schedule, and oh, and I should say that once again, because of this, uh, we have pushed back the My Fair Lady minisode, Poor which has already lady. been recorded. Uh, it's poor My Fair Lady for a number of reasons. Spoilers, everybody. I don't care for the movie that much. I saw it recently um, as well. I'm like, uh, yeah. never have to see that again. It's a little bit sexist and a little bit elitist. Uh, and kind of long. And insanely long. Uh, so, yeah. So, I, one of the reasons I decided to push it back is because this episode quickly became timely. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, this was... It was on the schedule, and then suddenly it became emotionally relevant to, right. I'd say, the tone of the country. Um, and we don't necessarily need to spend a lot of time or maybe even any time talking about the specifics of the shooting itself or how we feel to, uh, about it. I don't necessarily want to be navel gazing about it. Um, but I will say that, you know, in times like this, um, 
it is very common for people to ask, why would God allow such a thing to happen? Um, I myself ask that. I mean, I have my intellectual response, but that doesn't do much for my emotional response. In moments like this. In moments like this. Uh, you know, I have my intellectual response is, you know, talking about the concept of free will and the concept of, well, what does intervening look like? Mm-hmm. Um, and why do you want God to intervene on everything or mm-hmm. just these big ones or, you the know. definition of what is a fallen world. Yeah. So my intellectual response has a lot to do with that. My emotional response is, yes, yes, that's all well and good, but what about this? Like, mm-hmm. you know, 50 people just mowed down they just went out to have a good time and they just get mowed down i 49 49 pardon me uh oddly enough i had a i had a big response to the shooting in the theater for the dark knight rises four years ago and i think the one of the reasons i had a response to that was because it was movies and Hmm. i know that sounds weird but it's i was very aware that that weekend I was going to see the movie. We were going to be doing an episode about the movie for Battleship Pretension, and everyone was going to everyone was going to be talking about how is Nolan going to end this trilogy? Exactly. That was the conversation everybody was having. Well, not everybody. There were people that wanted to have that conversation. There were people that were eager to have that conversation. So much so that they went to a midnight showing. And like, this is, this is the stuff that goes through my head. Like I, I try to make this tangible for myself. That's a long movie. And they went to a midnight show or maybe like an 11 PM show. I don't remember exactly, but they went to a very late show, which meant they were probably going to be tired at work the next, the next Mm -hmm. day, but they were willing to endure that because they wanted to be like the first ones to see it. Or they, they just so badly wanted to see it. They were so excited after the dark night. And so all right, let's go. And I'm sure they were excited they got their, when they got their tickets. Like, just so much of this is relatable to me. Uh, not related to me, but I can relate to so much of what these people were probably feeling. Well, and the- then for this horrible thing to happen. And I feel bad talking about an, an older shooting as opposed to this one. Um, well, but- it's part of the tragedy is that there have been enough of these now in yeah. recent years that you can compare your re- reaction from yeah. one to the other yeah and it's just and that's the thing is you know i'm not somebody who goes out to clubs or anything mm-hmm. like that but i know people that do right and it's just let's go out and have a good time on i believe it was a friday friday night right mm-hmm. let's go do that it was saturday night saturday night pardon me i apologize it happened early sunday morning and so let's go let's do this you know and it'll be fun and that's the end yeah um and then this happens, just like people, or it's like, hey, let's go to school, or let's go to church. I mean, just the, like you said, the number of these that are happening, it really creates a, uh, an element of you can't feel safe. Right. And from a Christian standpoint, it, it's unsettling philosophically to not feel safe. Now, admittedly, this is not a safe world in any mm-hmm. in any way. Um, you know, car accidents or, you know, uh, your health gives out or whatever it is. Um, there's no guarantee that you'll be safe, but at the same time, it just, there's something about the deliberate quality of how these people died 
that makes you wonder like, oh, God absolutely could have stopped this. Like, this is not like a, I mean, I guess natural disasters, God can stop as well. Sure. But it's just like so many things along the way could have happened to stop this and they didn't. Whether it be intervention on people's part or God tapping someone on the shoulder and saying, uh, hey, keep an eye on that guy or whatever. Um, and it just didn't. And it's very upsetting to think about. And part of what this episode is going to be is just dealing spiritually and emotionally with tragedy um, and and a prolonged grief. Um, and so we will be quoting a fair amount, as we, as we always do, from C.S. Lewis, this time from A Grief Observed, which I don't quote very often. Uh, and we're actually going to lead with a quote that plays into a little bit what I was saying a moment ago. Uh, C.S. Lewis says, We were promised sufferings. They were part of the program. We were even told, Blessed are, those, are they that mourn. And I accept it. I've got nothing that I hadn't bargained for. Of course it is different when the thing happens to oneself, not to others. And in reality, not in imagination. Uh, a Grief Observed was written after C.S. Lewis's wife died. And it was basically him just dealing with these things. And that quote to me is what it's all about, is... Tragedy is something that happens to other people up until the day it happens to you. And you realize how quickly, not necessarily your opinion changes. You're, you know, his opinions about suffering and loss and mourning has not changed. But the feeling about it really changes. And, and, that's, and that's the thing is for... A number of people, like these shootings, were a sad thing that happened to other people. And then this past weekend, for a lot of families, it was something that happened to them. Mm -hmm. And it's a, a very sad thing and a very uh, frightening thing and a very angering thing. Do you find that, instead of asking you, I'll tell you how I feel. Okay. There's a, there's a strange abstraction, abstractness. What's the word? When I think about 49 people okay. versus any of the ones that came before it, because clearly this is one of the worst mass shootings, if not the worst mass shooting in American history, they keep saying. Um, it's almost like the smaller the group is that has you know, been killed, the worse I feel. Does that make any sense at all? Am I, I hope hmm. I'm not just speaking, I hope I'm speaking to something that other people feel and not being uh, a creep about it. But Feel free to elaborate. Yeah, there's, I don't know, the higher the number goes, the less it is, the less... The more difficult it is to think of it as a person, and then sure. another person, and another person, another person. So that I mean, poor Orlando. Orlando had like three hits in one yeah. weekend, practically. Yeah. Um, the, the I forget the girl's name, sadly, but the the singer who was I shot, Christine Grimmie, or something like that. Yeah, it was the previous yeah. Friday when she, she's just standing there signing autographs, and a guy comes up and shoots her dead. I'm like, yeah. I was, I was so stunned by that because she. She's not a famous person. She's yeah. she's sort of like second or third tier in terms of fame. Um, I had never heard of her before this incident, and yet because it was just one person standing there yeah. getting shot, there's like a, a a shock factor to that. That 49 people, it's just a different thing. It's yeah. like a, a picture of ma a group of people, like to, half of them could fit yeah. in this room. It's like it doesn't really affect me. I don't think. And a lot of this is like coming to my mind as you're talking. I haven't. Mm -hmm. I realized while you were talking that I haven't really dealt with this. Yeah. It's now been close to a week. Yeah. And I haven't really dealt with it. And I think it's because because it was a gay club, it became, in comparison to other tragedies like this, it became less a political thing and it became more a political thing. 
Yeah. I, I, sh- I should say those others were less political than this one because of the gay yeah. aspect of it. It's like, well, because uh, gays have been uh, you know, put down by the, by the other side, you know, the, by, by the Republicans. Right. It's like, well, then now they're like, it's all about gun law meets yeah. that. And so it becomes something else. And I, yeah. I turned off to it. I tend to turn off to those kind of things in any, any subject of news. And so yeah. I'm like, I don't really want to read about this. I don't really want to think about it. Right. I'm I'm really I did read some of the biographies of the people that were killed and it's extremely moving. Yes, um, I think that is the best thing you can do is mm-hmm. read about the victims cuz that's the thing is and David and I recorded a BP about this uh, that actually hasn't gone up yet, but one of the things that I said is that like you know, politicizing this is is fine because it is political. You know, we're dealing with guns, we're dealing with possibility of terrorism and that sort of thing. So there is a political component to it because it's like, okay, how do we keep this from happening again? But I think people jump to it so fast Mm -hmm. that I think, you know, the victims sort of get lost in the shuffle. And I think step one for everybody, and I think for me and for you, is I looked at I looked at the names of the victims, I looked at their faces. Mm -hmm. There were things that came out. The thing that got me, and I have a hard time um, talking about it without getting a little misty. Um, there was a, a, a mom released some texts that she got. I saw this. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, this person is, is, is texting like I'm in the bathroom. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's coming. And I think the last thing he texts is I'm going to die. Mm-hmm. I mean, like I, I can only imagine if I got those texts from a loved one and there's like nothing I can do about it. I mean, it just, yeah, Huh. Just to think about it is is very harrowing, and the helplessness that that mother must have felt is just terrifying to me. Um, and so, so I think that is the I think that's a good first instinct is to the politics will be there when I need it. <laughs> uh, we don't need to worry about it going away, um, and it and that's a vital thing. I don't mean to downplay the importance of how do we keep this from happening again, but in but. We need to first, I think, focus on the this and mourning the people that the lives that were lost. Otherwise, it will only ever stay a political issue. And I think it's very easy for both sides to just dig in their heels about what they believe and not focus on what anyone else believes simply because, well, these are just 49 victims. They're not necessarily individuals and... I'll just use this to my own political ends. Mm -hmm. But I think if you're focusing on them as individuals, I think you come to, it's not, again, it's not even that your opinion will change, but I think your attitude will change. Um, At least I hope so. So yes, I think that is a, I think it's perfectly okay to turn off from the politics of this, but to be focusing on what what was lost and who was lost. Um, So, Okay. Now that we are appropriately bummed out, um, I'm so bummed. So and and uh, I will make the same apology that I make uh, in the BP episode that comes up. Uh, it's entirely possible that I will be making uh, jokes from time to time throughout this episode. I apologize if that seems crass. Uh, humor is, is a humor is a coping mechanism for me. It's a way that gets me out of what I out of my emotions so that I can press onward and keep talking about the things that. that I need to say. Uh, okay. So we are talking about Inside Lewin Davis. Which seems not connected to what we just said. It at seems first. at first. 
I will say that I recently rewatched Inside Lewin Davis. I believe it was my third favorite movie of 2013, behind mm-hmm. Enough Said and Her. Upon watching it again, uh, I think I can safely say it is my favorite movie of 2013, and I do think it is probably one of the five best movies made in the 2010s. Wow. Yeah. It's uh, quite a leap. It is. Um, and I think just the first time around, I was just seeing it as like, it was just one more Oscar movie to watch. Hmm. Not merely because Oscar Isaac is in it, but it was in the mo- it was in the running for Oscars, you know. Um, but now that I know what it is, I could return to it outside of that. You know, at, at the time it was sort of just a movie to check off the list. Sure. Now it's a movie I can return to. And, you know, and there's a, re- and I think there's a reason that, for example, the Criterion Collection snatched it up immediately because I think they recognize that this is really something special. Um, I'm sure if, if, I'm sure they would like to snatch up any, everything by the Coen brothers and they're actually going to be releasing Blood Simple soon, which is exciting as mm-hmm. well. I saw that. Um, but the film I feel like is not necessarily talked about enough. I know it's only been a few years, but, when people talk about the Coen brothers, you know, they're going to talk about Fargo and no country for old men and fair enough. I think this movie deserves to be mentioned in the same breath as Fargo and no country for old men. I think this is, it's not a genre film and they deal a lot in genre. And I think because it's not a genre film, I think people don't necessarily know how to take it. And there are times when it doesn't feel like a Coen brothers film. Other times that it feels tremendously like a Coen brothers film one of the one of the reasons that it may not feel like that is because it's not shot by Roger Deakins, right. who's their their DP these days. It's shot by uh, Bruno Debanel, who was nominated for an Oscar, rightfully so. Um, and so, I don't know. It, it's such a strange movie, and one that I that hits me on a lot of different levels, and a movie that I think was maybe their most personal movie. Um, for reasons that I'll get into later. And it's, it's always interesting when somebody, when, a, when directors like the Coen brothers or, you know, like a Steven Spielberg or a Tarantino or Paul Thomas Anderson, when they make movies that are, that could seem like, Oh, this is one of their minor works. This is what they do in between true grit and something else. Um, but I think this is more than just a minor work. I, I think this is a remarkably personal work. And one that I think is very important, um, not merely to them and to appreciating them, but I think to humanity. Uh, and I think if you haven't seen Inside Lewin Davis, and I have to assume that if you're listening to this, you probably have, but maybe not. If you haven't seen it, turn this off immediately and go watch it. Uh, you may not have the response that I did, but I, even I didn't have this response when I first saw it. I really liked it. I maybe even loved it. But now I, I think it's like a top hundred movie for me. Hmm. Um, so that's my response to I'm it. I'm interested to hear you break that down. Now, if I recall correctly, you don't nec- don't really love this movie, which I don't take as a personal affront no, in no. theory. Emotionally, I do. I feel like this is a rebuke of me. No, 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 not at all. Okay. Um, that's my, a joke, by the way. I know. Um, my my first viewing was in the theater. And I, I enjoyed it because I enjoy Coen Brothers. And I enjoy, in a movie like this that I did, kind of like you were describing, I did perceive it as maybe being a smaller movie. Mm-hmm. If if memory serves, they had a hard time finding distribution for it, which is weird to think yeah. in this era of their career 
that they would find have any trouble at all finding yeah. distribution. But because it is such a, a weird kind of floating in no man's land in terms of their body of work, it's like, what do you do with this? How do you market it? Yeah. Um, and so I was that that was my mindset going into seeing it. it was like, oh, this took a while. It must be minor. Um, but and, and then I saw it and I said, this is really beautiful to look at. It's yeah. just a really well shot movie, and puts you in that time. And Oscar Isaac's or Isaac Isaac Isaac. Um, Oscar Isaac is really good. But the first time I saw it on the big screen, maybe it was because it was bigger. It's just kind of overwhelming. But he is essentially a young curmudgeon. Yeah. and uh, con- continually discontent and all of these things. And it's like, it's kind of hard to watch him. Or it was for me in that context, in the theater with the audience who weren't really reacting much. Right. Um, and the, the the brand of music that it's covering is is not my brand of music. It's mm. like, um, it's I'm not putting it down per se. It's just, I've never really cottoned to it, if you will. Yeah. Um, there's something maudlin about that kind of music that yeah. it's supposed to be like uplifting a generation or something like that. But it's, it's, to me, it's like, it's almost like whining without the electric guitars, you know, that the nineties were like, yeah, kind of critics were complaining is too much whining going on. Well, there's a lot of whining going on in the late, uh, early to mid sixties as well. Yeah. But for good reason, obviously. Um, in, in any case, I'm, I'm, I'm off, uh, I'm off the train of what I was saying, which was that I, I enjoyed it, but I didn't love it. I enjoyed it more the second time I saw it, which was earlier this week. Um, and I watched it again. I was like, so the, all the hype has been removed. Right. You know, it's not an Oscar contender anymore. It's just what it is. And because all of that's, it's just kind of what it is, I can kind of watch it that way, sitting in the comfort of my living room. And I was like, I really enjoyed it a lot more, but I wasn't like in love with it as a Coen Brothers movie. I was still like, Fargo is far superior to this. Mm. And then I asked you, I sent you an email and I said, I don't really understand how you're getting the theme you want to talk about out of this movie. Yeah. And without stealing your thunder at all, I'll just say that your answer in the reply email email was enlightening to say the least. Oh, good. And I appreciate it. I think I was, I, I kind of truncated my answer. It was a real quick answer. Like, thanks for that. That's great. Perfect. Great. Um, but I'll say now to you, to your face, it, it opened my eyes to oh. a different way of seeing the movie. And I haven't watched it all the way through again. I sort of, did the sixth sense thing and I watched it again in my mind just right. real quick. And I was like, okay, I can totally see that. Um, this morning before leaving the house to come here, I kind of fast forwarded through a lot of it and, and, uh, and watched a bunch of scenes again with that in mind. It was mm-hmm. like, I get it. This is, yeah. it's not the movie that I saw the first time or the second time. It's, it's a movie about what you want to talk about today. And, and it's not, honestly, I wish I could say that I saw it, that I saw these themes the first time I saw it. I didn't. Uh, some critic, I don't even remember who it was, but David was reading this critic and said, oh, this person thinks that Inside Lewin Davis is a film about grief. And I remember now the minute he said it, I was like, oh, and and I, all those flashes went through my head and I was like, yeah, that's that, you know what? I, I get it. But then I didn't rewatch it and it just stayed like, yeah, that's what an interesting way of looking at it. You watch it again. And this thing Mm -hmm. is maybe one of the most like the most about grief as any movie ever made. Uh, not, I mean, <sighs> that is sorry, quite an overstatement about the process. You know what? I'm going to stand by it. I think All right. not, not of any movie. That's, that's hyperbolic, but I mean, it is up there for reasons that I'll go into. No, in I, I can see it and I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing what you say about it, but I, I do see it. And, uh, 
I, I want to sit and watch it again in the very near future with this in mind. Mm-hmm. And I'm not trying to like paint this as like some big revolutionary thing because probably a lot of people saw it this way yeah. the first time they saw it because they might have been suffering grief themselves sure. at that moment. Sure. And so they recognized it in Isaac's face. Um, I should say Lewin's face. Um, but yeah, it's it's definitely that. But here's the thing: is it's about what we're going to talk about, but it's also about other things that I yeah. I hold as in high esteem because maybe I'm going through these things. And we'll talk about that in a minute mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm reminded of the way people talk about the movie 25th Hour, which I have not seen. It's a marvelous film. Uh, I would say it's Spike Lee's best, but Do the Right Thing is Spike Lee's best. This is so I'd good. say it's, I'd say it's his second movie. best. Um, that's a movie that is very specific to its main characters, and yet it is a definite 9-11 movie. Hmm. Now, they, the characters do address 9-11, and it takes place in New York right after that, and so it's, but it's not about that, but somehow it is about that at the, the same time. It's in the background. It's it's always there. Informing everything. Exactly. Without being about it. Even though these characters are doing their own thing that has nothing to do with it, it's just always there. Mm-hmm. And that is a very difficult thing to capture in movies where you an argument could be made, you know, as, as you and I, when I first saw the movie. Now, I didn't defend, the minute someone said that it's about grief, I was like, you, you, you've nailed it. You're absolutely right. Um, but at the same time, like, it's not our first thought. It takes somebody pointing it out to realize just how much this thing is about this. Like, I would have said as, as you did. In fact, I probably did say that it's about, you know, this frustrated artist at a time right. where he just doesn't really know what he's doing. And so he's just in this cycle over and over again and, and doesn't know how to get himself out of it and maybe doesn't want to get himself out of it. All these things. And it is that. In the same way that, you know, 25th Hour, which is not the companion film, uh, 25th Hour, you know, is about this guy who's going to be going to jail because, you know, he was a drug dealer and all that sort of thing. Um, but it is also very much about 9-11 in a really weird abstract way. It mm-hmm. Just there's, It is crazy to me when filmmakers are, are able to do that. You know, Nashville, my favorite movie of all time, um, now, at the end, there is an assassination. But up until then, even even before then, the Kennedy assassination uh, is all over this thing, mm-hmm. as it, both of them, uh, John F. Kennedy and Robert Kennedy, is just all over this thing. Like, it's just people are still, as is, you know, Watergate in Vietnam. It's a very political movie. Um, but the morning that people have over the promise of John F. Kennedy and Robert Kennedy and the fact that that was taken away. I think it's, the entire, it's all over that film. The seventies. Sure. <laughs> Popular culture in the seventies and especially yeah. movies. I think of taxi driver. Sure. And it's, you know, it's easy to overlook this, but it, it's a reaction to that decade as well. It's like when Travis Bickle is rolling down the street and he's calling out all the, all the ways that humanity has fallen. Yeah. And he wishes he could clean it up. Yeah. That's he's talking about a difference between what he knew possibly when he was before he went to war. Yeah. And then what he sees after the war and yeah. just the way things have uh deteriorated. And I think that's that's why the 70s feel kind of in a way I love 
seventies movies. Yeah. But you feel kind of gross and dirty watching a lot of them because yeah. there's this there's this sense of like dread and anger that permeates so much of it. I mean, you see it in the endings of so many movies where yeah. there's just like a either a character the main character dies or there's no clear resolution to the the main goal of the character. Yeah. Um, he's just left with palms in the air like what do I yeah. do now movies like Chinatown and yeah exactly yeah. And, and there's dozens Godfather of Godfather films and all of them it's just like and so yeah there's I, I didn't mean to go, go off That's on the tangent but it's but but films are reactions to what has come just before it or in the decades before it yeah and uh, and yeah this movie is no different yeah and and that's the thing is you know Inside Lewin Davis is not a not necessarily a political film um, but uh Although there is some of that because this takes place before the Kennedy assassination and there are aspects to that um, that, I don't know, it's, there's a song called Please Mr. Kennedy, which, mm-hmm. is actually, which is actually quite funny. And it's just weird to think, like when I think of John F. Kennedy, I think of the assassination first and then the Cuban Missile Crisis. Mm-hmm. Those are the two things I think about. Mm-hmm. But there was a time when he was the president. That was it. Mm-hmm. Just the president, and uh, oh, there's a, and we're gonna go into outer space, and we're gonna make a goofy song about that. Like they don't know when they're singing the song, the tragedy that's going to happen. Exactly. Um, and so there is uh, an element of naivete um, on the part of certain characters. And so, so we've been talking around this uh, enough, and it's, and this is the kind of movie that for me at this point, it's very hard for me to talk about specifics because I feel like I'm not doing justice to the whole. Mm. Um, but so inside Lewin Davis is about this, uh, this folk singer in 1961 or two, um, who is, he lives in New York and he's just couch surfing and, uh, hasn't had a whole lot of success. And so this character is, uh, Lewin Davis played by Oscar Isaac and it is revealed fairly early that he was part of a duo. And it's the first line of dialogue. Is it? Yeah, because he, he sings a song, and the owner of the place, uh, the Gaslight Cafe, calls mm-hmm. him over. And one of the first things out of his mouth, he, he said, didn't you used to sing that with your partner? Or it said some, something kind of like that. I thought that was the last line of dialogue. Well, think about it. Oh, you're killing me. <laughs> um, yeah, it's... Uh, and it's weird. I remember it as, as not the last line of dialogue, no, obviously, but towards the end. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and it's clear that like, okay, so something happened to his, they're not a duo anymore. Right. Uh, and you're not really sure what happened. And then, okay, so his partner died and that is a very sad thing. Uh, but then on top of that, his partner had killed himself. Um, and that comes about fairly late in the film and, and, it's, you know, in true Coen Brothers fashion, when it is finally revealed, it is met with callousness mm-hmm. and and humor. You know, that's the thing is on it's a Coen Brothers movie, maybe first and foremost, because even while it is exploring these very sad things, it is often very funny. Um, and that whole sequence in the John Goodman character mm-hmm. is v- quite funny, um, you know, when it is revealed. 
when it's revealed that... Uh, why, why, why would he jump off the George Washington Bridge? Yeah. When you're going to kill yourself, you jump off the Brooklyn yeah. Bridge. Traditionally, you jump off the Brooklyn Bridge. Right. And then he's like, George Washington Bridge, who does that? Was he some kind of an idiot? <laughs> yeah. And just, you know, and just horrible. And it's, and it's, it's funny that this guy would be so audacious mm-hmm. as to say these things about someone that uh, the person right in front of you had lost. Um, so... That's the situation, and the film very much focuses on a week in the life of Lewin Davis, um, where he's just, you know, he's, again, going from one couch to another, talking with old friends and people who like him and don't like him, getting gigs here and there, uh, and just kind of drifting. And so that is what the film is about, or rather, that is what happens in the film. Mm-hmm. But I think, and we can get into individual components in a moment. But yes, as I mentioned, the loss of Mike, or Mikey as he is sometimes called, is, it's just cast over this entire thing. You know, the, the film does take place in winter, so it's very cold and all that, but you never really see the sun shining and also the way the film is shot. Even if you do see the sun shining, you're never going to see a blue sky, you know? And so I don't necessarily think this is meant to connect the two, but the the loss of Mike is just hanging over everything like sure. clouds, you mm-hmm. know? And so, um, well, every character that, that he meets brings up Mike. Yeah. In some capacity. Yeah. Um, even even when he's talking with John Goodman, who is a, basically a stranger, um, yeah, the first thing th- out of his mouth too it still is like, comes up. weren't you weren't you in a duo? I think he says something kind of like that. And so, so when you you know when you watch movies, you kind of train yourself to look for things like that, things that repeat. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that this keeps coming up. And we, we don't see a whole lot of reaction on, Lewis, on Lewin's face, but we do see it from time to time. Um, there comes a moment when he is, uh, he is at a, not necessarily a posh dinner party, but he is at a, a dinner party hosted by this uh, college professor and his wife who are very well-to-do and are very hip to you know folk music. And so uh, their couch is one that he sleeps on from time to time. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, they actually ask him to play something. So he starts to play a song that we had heard just, we had heard playing over a montage and it was, and the version we hear is Lewin and Mike, the two, it's their version Mm -hmm. of a song called fare thee well. So then he's at this dinner party and now he's trying to play and he's going to play it alone. And as he starts to do it, um, this professor's wife starts to sing and it throws Lewin completely and he gets he has a very agitated response and he says what are you doing and she says oh, i'm singing mike's part and he responds with he says you know what uh f mike's part i mean he he yells this in her mm-hmm. face and he's yelling at everybody and there comes a moment when he's talking about you know i'm not some this isn't some parlor trick like i'm an artist you know you can't just wind me up and tell me to do this mm-hmm. thing so it would appear that he's angry about one thing, that he's angry about like as, as a frustrated and not 
entirely sin- successful folk musician, this idea of, well, I mean, he's, he sleeps on our couch a lot. He kind of owes us. And what else is he going to do? So let's just, you know, so, you know, dance monkey, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, so definitely uh, the film is about his frustration as an artist. But I think the f- I don't think he'd be having this response if this had not happened. If it was a song that he just sang by himself, he would have gotten all the way to the end. He probably wouldn't have felt great about it, but that would be it. But the fact that she starts singing Mike's part and it just feels to him wrong. And it really focuses on the fact that like you're singing Mike's part and there's a reason that Mike isn't around to sing Mike's part. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, well, I think that he he might react the same way if if the Coens had written it that they just broke up. You know, they were, they were just a team sure. and there was like a financial crap that went down. Sure. And, and so they broke up and they're angry at each other. And then the wife, cut to the wife singing... And he blows up at her. Yeah. But the truth is that that's the same reaction. You would have the same reaction if you have not dealt with that pain. Right. Or that loss. It's like, it's still anger. Yeah. And it still feels fresh. Yes. Um, And then by the end of the film, he sings, he actually, the song that we heard over a montage, because he's playing a record, um, the song that, uh, Fare Thee Well, that he and Mike sang before and that he tried to sing for these people he is at the club and he sings it by himself and it's arranged differently. It feels differently. It feels a lot more mournful now. Mm -hmm. Um, and when you think about the nature of the song, um, now the song is romantic in nature, but when you're saying fare thee well, I mean, it's a very, you know, it's a, it's saying goodbye. Mm -hmm. And the fact that the film at the beginning, it's these two guys singing, and the song isn't necessarily upbeat, but it's a bit more up-tempo. And then when he sings it alone at the end, uh, I mean, it's a notable difference. And there's, and it sounds weird because it sounds like, well, now he's more sad. And it's like, no, it's the first off, the fact that he's doing this at all speaks to where he is right now, and that he actually, better sad than numb, or sad than angry, mm-hmm. Because even though anger is part of it, um, sadness shows that you're actually processing this. And it's a wonderful moment. And then he talks to the club owner who says, like, hey, didn't you, you know. And so we realize this is a big deal. And the club owner's like, hey, didn't you and Mike used to sit, like, says it, like, Mm -hmm. in just a very casual way. Um, But he definitely observes, but the club owner observes that this is... I have not heard this this way. I have only heard it in terms of the two of you. Hmm. And so, you know, those are some of the external ways that uh, that the, the absence of Mike is addressed. Um, but I think internal and in an abstract way, I think you find it in mostly, I'd say, in Oscar Isaac's performance. Um, in that he just has, you know, one thing that I had observed is that you see the, the album cover of Lewin and Mike's, uh, album and they're both clean cut, big smiles on their face. Mm -hmm. It looks kind of hokey. Um, Lewin now, and then you actually look at Lewin's album, his solo album, which is called Inside Lewin Davis. And the fact that it's called Inside Lewin Davis, like, this is what's inside me. Hmm. And on the cover, 
He has this scraggly beard. His hair is longer, and he looks alone and distant. And that's just on the album. So there's a visual difference. But then just the way he carries himself, you know, he's very aloof. Um, he is a bit curmudgeonly at times, as you said. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is a quality to his eyes that can only be described as like a thousand yard stare. Just that he sees things, but he's, but he's seeing past them. Or more specifically, he's just not focused on them. He might not even know what he's focused on. But the reason that I say that this is actually a film, that this is like one of the best grief movies of all time is because we see him doing things that have nothing to do with his grief. You know, we see him dealing with his sister. We see him talking to his father who's in a uh, rest home and all this sort of thing. And, you know, we see him trying to do stuff for his career. So that's fine. But his loss colors everything. You know, there are movies about grief that are very directly about grief. The companion film is one of them. Um, and it, the word grief is used and, and, you know, loss is very directly addressed. Um, but I think one of the things about grief when you're in the midst of it is that, uh, is that it's, it's just hanging in the back of your mind, drawing your attention even if you don't realize it. And so you're never a hundred percent there. So that's why when a character is screaming at him, he doesn't really respond with yeah. yelling. He mm-hmm. responds with jokes mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. Sarcasm. Sarcasm. Uh, criticism. You know, when a character insults him, like he'll respond with sort of a, a half hearted uh, threat, mm-hmm. but that's kind of it. And, it's just uh and it's just because he is a little bit numb or at least preoccupied or distant, you know, whatever you want to say, and it, I think it is because he's not yet processed the fact that he is, you know, if you want to put it in musical terms, he is now a solo act and there's a very specific reason for that. And, you know, speaking as somebody who has lost people to suicide, I know that there's def- there's also a, a helplessness there with this feeling of like well surely I should have noticed something mm-hmm. I uh, I must have been able to do something I just selfishly didn't pay attention or something like that and so and those are with people that I was that I didn't see on a regular basis this is a guy that he was seeing probably every day mm-hmm. or at least several times a week and this still happened and I'm sure part of him is thinking like why didn't what could I have done Surely I could have done something. And so that's probably there as well. There's just so much going on inside Lewin Davis um, that that I think just is astonishing. It's, it's I think, maybe some of the most nuanced writing the Coen brothers have ever done. Um, because... I mean, they they still in, manage to embrace nuance even in the most outla- outlandish of their films. But this is so small and so intimate um, that there are things that go by and I didn't notice them, you didn't notice them. I, I am confident that if I watch this movie many, many more times, 
uh, I will see something new every time or something new will strike me in a line of dialogue mm -hmm. or a specific shot or an acting choice on the part of primarily Oscar Isaac. Um, and so, yeah, I, I've, I've been talking for a while. I'm sorry. Um, well, you love this movie. I do love this movie. It's, I mean, it is a, it's a top three Coen brothers movie for me. Um, and you know what? I might get to a point where I actually like it more than no country for old men. Hmm. I'm not sure if I'd say it's a better movie, but I think I like it more. It's a, it's a more personal movie for you. Because, Certainly. Yeah. Fargo. I don't know if they're ever going to be Fargo. I don't think that's Fargo's outstanding. Uh, yeah. I don't know if it's possible. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's um, a hard movie to beat for anyone. Just thinking about uh, Oscar Isaac and the first time I saw the movie again, I mentioned earlier that I think because it was so big on the movie screen, I, I was sort of overwhelmed by his his uh, his bleak anger. Yeah. And I wasn't seeing much past it, so I wasn't really seeing much nuance. The second time I watched it, which was just this past yeah. week, um, I was noticing more. Like I was, I kept questioning myself: Why am I along the ride? along this ride with this guy. Like, why yeah. Why do I care what happens to this guy? Because the way he reacts to everything is so uh, mean and selfish mm -hmm. that he should be off-putting. And even his body language and the way he carries himself, well, that's the same thing, yeah. his, his, the beard and the hair and all this kind yeah. of stuff, it's like, but it's, there's something puppy-doggish almost yeah. about it. And, and I keep thinking about um, it, it reminds me of other movies as I kind of filter my opinions on what I'm watching now based on how I reacted to other movies. And it, I kept thinking of two movies, especially, um, or three, actually one was, uh, Serpico. It kept oh, reminding sure. me of early Pacino yeah. and Pacino in that movie is angry from the first frame. He's like, he's, yeah. he's got this mission. He's going to do it. Doesn't care who gets in the way. Um, and he becomes Oscar Isaac over the course of that movie. He becomes like, he's clean cut, like when he was with Mike. Mm -hmm. And by the end, when he's a solo act, he's like scraggly. And yeah. of course, that's part of the undercover stuff as well. But, um, but just the kind of, the way that Pacino lets you in is kind of the same way that Oscar Isaac is letting you in in this movie. And it's through his eyes. Yeah. And there's kind of this like, almost like helpless kind of look in his eye. It's, a, it's, it's exa you're exactly right to call it a thousand yard stare because it is that. Mm. But there's also, it's kind of a, Maybe just because they're big. I don't know. You just got big yeah. eyes. You just kind of you kind of uh, you kind of want to side with. You kind of want to hug him. He just needs a hug yeah. from someone that he loves, or he just needs someone to say "I love you" back or something. I don't think that ever happens in the movie. He says "I love you" to Jean at one point, and she kind of laughs it off, mm -hmm. if memory serves. But I don't think anyone ever really says "I love you" back to him. They punch him in the face, sure, and they you know call him horrible names and yeah. accuse him of terrible things. Um, so Pacino is one, one person that allows me to like Oscar Isaac in this movie. Another one is, um, it, something about is, is the scene where, uh, where, uh, Lewin and Jean meet again in the cafe. Mm -hmm. It's a scene where he sees the cat outside. And right. So he's sitting there and there, he's talking about, uh, the future. Right. And he says, you, are you doing this because you're trying to set out some kind of future for yourself? Well, that's so careerist. That's so... Yeah. It's so shallow of you. It's supposed to be about the now. And, and there's something about that moment. And because it's in a cafe, it reminded me of uh, uh, Mark Ruffalo and What's-Her-Face from You Can Count on Me. Laura Linney. Laura Linney. Yeah. At the beginning of that movie when they first meet up. And yeah. throughout that entire movie, he, 
Mark Ruffalo as Terry, I think was his name. Yeah. Um, he's a guy that you shouldn't like because he's just so messed up. I mean, in yeah. every way. He doesn't know what he's doing with his life. He's screwed up again. He's just out of jail. Spent a couple of years in Alaska, you know, all this yeah. stuff. But there's something puppy doggish about him, too. It's just like this warm core inside of him yeah. that you still like. And you just, you kind of want to hang around him. You still, you know, like the kid, I guess the kid is sort of the save the cat for that movie for yeah. him. It's like he, he loves the kid and the kid likes him. Um, and so there's another way in because I kept thinking of that performance. So it's kind of like lets me like this performance. I know that sounds a little backdoorish. That's fine. Um, the third movie, and we talked about this movie on the podcast, and this whole movie reminds me of just a different take on the similar thing, which is uh, Sweet and Low Down. Sure. Um, you know, the guy that nobody really likes, but they appreciate his genius. Well, in this case, they yeah. don't even appreciate his genius. Yeah. Um, but he's putting everyone off when he's, when he's performing. It's like all of this stuff that you have against him uh, as he's having these non-singing scenes yeah. kind of peel away. He's kind of roll away from him, and you believe that he's a person who feels. And he's a person who would not come back at you with a sarcastic, pointed criticism. Right. He's a person that you appreciate because he's a really good singer, yeah. I believe, and a great guitar player. Yeah. And he's putting himself out there for you with these emotions that otherwise you would not expect from him. Yeah. And that, that contrast is what makes you ultimately love the character. Well, and when you think about it, if we're if we're incorporating these ideas into the larger sense of Lewin in stages of grief, when he's playing music, yes, he is feeling Mike's absence, but it is also when he probably feels most connected to him. That's true. Because these are songs that they probably wrote together. They certainly probably performed together. I mean, he does have his own album, so maybe he did, you know, a lot of these on his own. But even so, like music is is a thing that the two of them got together on. And so when it explains why it's why he's so soulful in those moments, um, I mean, aside from him just being an artist in general, but like that this is this is how he expresses himself uh, emotionally. You know, Sweet and Low Down is a great uh, is a great companion film had we not already used it before. Right. Um, and if I wanted to explore a different aspect of this movie. Um, but that's one where the character talks about like, well, I, I, I save my emotions and I let them out through exactly. uh, yeah. my music. Except in that movie, the idea is, yeah, but he's using that as an excuse to not actually engage his emotions mm -hmm. in any kind of real way. Well, I think life. Lewin is doing that as well. I think so too. Mm -hmm. But in that moment, I feel like he can't even really help it. I don't think he has a philosophy behind, well, I'm not going to grieve over Mike. I'll let my music do that for him. No. I don't think he's aware of it. It's not explicit. Like Emmett Ray says that explicitly in the movie that he's yeah. using. He's saving it. Yeah. And then it doesn't matter what you think of him now because it doesn't matter because it's when he's on stage. Yeah. He's, it's like his, maybe one, his one or two self-aware things that he says in the yeah. movie. In this movie, you're right. He is not aware that he has not grieved. Yeah. And he can't help but say the things he's going to say or do the things he's going to do or withhold the kind of things that he does withhold from so yeah. many characters in this movie. But that's, he's doing the exact same thing that Emmett Ray is doing. Yeah. Uh, so we should move on. One thing that I did want to say briefly, and I haven't thought through this much. One of the reasons that I think, and I emailed this to you, one of the reasons that I think this was a movie that the Coen brothers felt they had to make. It's a movie about artists. They've done movies about artists before. Um, 
But if I say Joel Cohen, what do you think? Ethan Cohen. Yeah. If I say Ethan Cohen. Joel. Yeah. To the point now where this movie was made by the Cohen brothers. Joel and Ethan Cohen, like the two of them are together. They're also getting older. And as you get older, I think you start to reflect on certain things. Um, and I think that partially this is a movie that they needed to make as a way of processing what happens if and when, because they're not, they're probably mm. not going to die on the same day. What happens when one of us goes? Yeah. What happens to the other one? You know, cause I firmly believe that Joel Cohen without Ethan Cohen or Ethan Cohen without Joel Cohen would not be as good. The two of, I think they I really need each other. Mm -hmm. And so... Well, you hear stories about them on the set. Yeah. Well, you hear stories about the way they write. Yeah. And one is at the typewriter, typewriter, the keyboard, sure. whatever whatever keyboard they use. They might use a typewriter. It's not, I could see that. Yeah, totally. Uh, Woody Allen style. Um, but they, you know, they take naps and they get up and then they talk through dialogue and they're just walking around doing the dialogue that they end up writing down. Yeah. And I, I, I agree with you. And on the set, it's like an actor... This, so the stories go, an actor could go to either one and feel confident that both of them have this thought about it, right. about what to do with this random moment that's come up because they are so in tune with each other. You're right. It's like if one of them is gone, I don't think they, maybe they'd make a movie, yeah. the, the survivor, but it would not be the same. Yeah. And in fact, I remember I, I, I read through, um, Ethan Cohen wrote some short stories. I have the book at home somewhere. Oh, I read through some of them. And they definitely have like the flavor of like old school noir, some yeah. of them. And but there's there's something missing. Yeah. And it's not just because it's, I'm not watching a movie and there's no visual component. There's a visual component in my mind I can see because I can predict what they would have put on the screen by reading it. But it's there's something about the dialogue even in the, in these stories. It just doesn't feel like I'm like what am, did somebody just put Ethan Cohen's name on this and wrote it themselves? No. Yeah. Because it feel it doesn't feel like Cohen Brothers. It just feels like Ethan Cohen. I don't right. know Ethan Cohen. I yeah. know the Cohen Brothers. Yeah, you know, and I I actually just saw Paul Simon at uh, the Hollywood Bowl. Hmm. Years ago in Chicago, Jen and I saw Simon and Garfunkel. Hmm. Paul Simon is great. Simon and Garfunkel, however, I'm not sure if I'd say they're better, but they are notably different. Art Garfunkel may not be like the driving creative force behind Simon and Garfunkel, but you bring that voice in, hmm. like to see them, to, to see and hear them perform Bridge Over Troubled Waters live. Hmm. And you realize that Art Garfunkel, and he's had vocal trouble since then. This was, you know, well, it was well over 10 years ago now. Um, but he was an older guy, and what he could do with his voice, like it brought tears to my eyes. Wow. And so it's just like, and Paul Simon did some pretty wonderful things at the Hollywood bowl. And I was amazed by him as well. So I don't mean to, I don't mean to denigrate Paul Simon by himself. He's a wonderful solo artist, but you get the two of them together. Hmm. And I mean, it is astonishing. And so just as, you know, Lewin is great by himself and the two of them together, maybe we're better or maybe just different. Um, and the Coen brothers, and it, what's interesting to me, and I think it's telling, is that we immediately started thinking about what happens to their art 
if one of the Coen brothers dies. Ah, true. We don't. We didn't talk about what happens to them individually or their personal lives. Yeah, you know, and I think that's maybe why this film focuses on Lewin's art. Because that is how, he, that's sort of how he copes. And it's also just his default. And it might be theirs as well, but it is certainly their, uh, the audience's. You well, know? there's that point where he's talking to his sister and he says something about, uh, he's got a, something about his art and, and the word existence comes up or to mm-hmm. just exist. And the sister says, you mean if I don't have art, some, some sort of like entertainment thing to do, yeah. then I just exist? Yeah. And he says, yeah, kind of like dad. And he says, you think dad just exists? Yeah. And I've had this kind of conversation in my head, sort of like hard on my sleeve at the moment. It's, it could be attacked for saying something like this. But as a person who does write and has made an attempt at making movies and this sort of thing and drawing, you know, it's just, there's, a, there's a very creative component in me that I can't help. It's just like there. And yeah. I'm surrounded by other people who are like that. There's part of me that wonders what the heck do people do with their time that don't have this. I know, and it sounds part of me extreme. envies them, and part of me uh, pities them. What? Well, but you're a creative person. Yeah, I know. Oh, I thought I thought you were saying that you weren't part of that. that no, group. no, no. I mean, people who aren't preoccupied with yeah. art or creativity, and that that probably sounds very condescending of me. I don't mean to say say like us and them. But there's a conversation that uh, I've had with my friends, which is, you know, there are people who will just find a, a job that works for them, yeah. pays well, and allows them to see their family. And seeing their family is what it's all about. Now, you're married, as am I. Uh, seeing, my, you know, hanging out with my wife and loving my wife, that is the priority for me. Um, but my professional and creative endeavors are also important to me. And for uh, and it would be wonderful. I'm working towards getting paid for doing the thing that I love. Sure. Whereas I think a lot of people with that, and they're not selling out. They simply are just like, well, a job is a job. It's the thing that allows me to do the things I'm actually passionate mm-hmm. about. And I look at that and I'm like, oh, that sounds kind of great. And also not at the same time. Yeah. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade my creative impulses, but no. they also make life a little harder. <laughs> they uh, do. In certain ways. But it, I know that it's it's an idol of mine when I think about my creative intentions or whatever talent I might have. I think if that went away from me, if if I lost my right hand and I can't draw anymore, or yeah. if I, I don't know, something happened to my brain, you know, and I can't think the same way, um, what would I do? I don't know what to do with myself. And I think when I, it, it does sound condescending to lead with the thought in this conversation, well, what do they do when, when, when they, if they don't have a creative impulse? Yeah. But more so, it's there. There's a there's there is a, a kind of an envy that I feel for people that don't have it because m- m- my bringing it up at all or my cycling it through my brain over and over again is more about my fear of losing it yeah. than it is of me having it and them not having it. It's like they they it's us and them again. sure. But people who don't have this impulse or don't have a talent that they can kind of lean on, um, a creative talent, um, are better off. They 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 don't have they don't have to worry about losing that thing. Yeah. They have they have integrated into the real world in a way from birth yeah. that I don't understand. Yeah. They're probably a bit more adaptable. Than and you or myself. If you'll notice, there's a lot of obviously there's a lot of um, filmmakers, writers who who sort of work in an 
esoteric sort of weird world, like uh, another worldly sort of thing, maybe a David Lynch kind of kind of uh, creative person. And I don't understand those that kind of art because, yeah. I mean, I could I could reach for that and would just come off either pretentious or stupid. Yeah. Um, but then there are I think for the most part, um, artists like uh, a graphic artists or um, painters sculptors, writers of films, uh, directors, for, I think overwhelmingly, percentage-wise, are trying to recreate something in a real way that you can relate to. And I, I can't help but think, when I think about that, that it's an artist's desire to somehow connect with that which they don't understand. Sure. Which is a world without a David Lynch sort of movie. Yeah. Um, a world without that the ability or the desire or the time or money to create those things. Um, I don't know if any of that makes sense at all. Sure. And I, and I do think that, uh, it's interesting to, to bring it into the movie. Um, it's always interesting when the Coen brothers make movies about art because I think they can't help but make movies about themselves if they do that. I think Bart, right. I mean, they wrote Barton, Barton Fink, Fink when they had writer's block for Miller's Crossing. And I think they look at the character of Barton Fink, who is trying to write about real working class people. Yeah. Uh, and I think they probably have a lot of self-condemnation there. Mm -hmm. um, they make a movie like Hail Caesar, where I think <laughs> they actually celebrate and are and make a certain degree of peace, not that they were at war with themselves, but they, they sort of make peace with the fact that this is what they do and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, and we did an episode about that. Mm -hmm. And then a movie like Inside Lewin Davis, I think is the way his creative life and his personal life work together. Um, or don't. Or don't. And just, but the fact is that they are inherently intertwined. And I think that's why this is one of their most personal films, not merely dealing with, as I said, I think sort of speculation as to what it would feel like to try to continue on without the other person. Um, but also just other bringing in other ideas like just existing and stuff like that. So it's a, uh, we, we do need to we do need to move on and 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 I'm fine actually not breaking down like individual aspects of the film. I do think it looks beautiful. Fantastic. It's such a such an odd film. It's very soft. Like there are not a lot of hard lines or hard edges in the film. Um, but then also the use of color. It almost feels like the film has been drained of color and then they added color back selectively. It's very interesting. Like when you look at slashes, like I say slashes, though, it's like really harsh. It's not. But you'll see little dashes of yellow from a light or something. Mm -hmm. and it's like, oh, that's and it becomes a little bit jarring to see anything yeah. uh, that bright. Not that it's harsh or anything like that. So, um, it's so yeah, said I, that uh, that they wanted it to the film to feel like the way uh, Free Will and Bob Dylan, the album yeah. cover looks. Which is that mission know, accomplished? Ice on the ground, you know, kind of yeah. cold and yeah. And there is colorless. and there's a very specific shot where Lewin is walking, uh, uh, I think at a bus station, and he's walking in the snow and he's center frame. Yeah, and it's a it's 
Yeah, it's, I think it, I think that is a very direct mm-hmm. reference to that album cover. Um, so I think we'll move on. Uh, I will also say that the music is very much my kind of music. Is it? Um, I love it tremendously. You saw Paul I've, Simon in concert and Simon and Garfunkel in concert. So clearly, yes, you like um, this stuff. I probably would not have seen Paul Simon on my own. Uh, Jen is a huge fan, so we went He's for great. that. And yeah, it was great. I enjoyed myself tremendously. Um, I also saw Social Distortion in concert. That was my choice. Yikes. So, you know, uh, and Tom Waits. I haven't seen that many concerts. I need to go more often. Um, Weird Al's this summer at the Super Bowl, at Super Bowl, at the uh, Hollywood Bowl. It might have already happened, actually. I think it might have already happened. Uh, I want to go. I'm Sorry, just, buddy. No money at the moment. Um, so, we should move. Oh, and uh, so the soundtrack is great. Seek it out. Lots of fun. Um, and some. And Oscar Isaac is a talented singer, singer and musician. Uh, I'll say that. So we'll move on very briefly to our companion film, which is uh, Moonlight Mile, directed, written and directed by Brad Silberling, who made City of Angels and Casper and a number of other movies. Um, it stars Jake Gyllenhaal, Dustin Hoffman, Susan Sarandon, Holly Hunter, and a number of others. And... This one actually is more directly related mm-hmm. to certain, uh, to you know, current events because it is about a, a shooting. A, a crazy person went into a cafe and started shooting people, and one of the people that he killed was this uh, young woman who was engaged to Jake Gyllenhaal, and her parents were Dustin Hoffman and Susan Sarandon, and so she. So it is the aftermath that is over. Um, and so the the three of them are trying to figure out what they're going to do with their lives, and they're trying to move on with their lives, but um, you know it's difficult to do that because some of them are dealing with it, some of them are not. Um, you know, there's a, a very interesting. I remember liking this a lot, even though it's a little bit heavy-handed. But I guess the movie itself is kind of heavy-handed. Um, so Dustin Hoffman works across the street from the diner, like it's a small town. He works across the street from the diner, and during the shooting, the like the plate glass window was shot, and right now there's just a piece of plywood over it, and it just bothers him that like why can't they just replace that window? Like literally, when he every time he looks across the street, now it's the cafe where his daughter was killed. Anytime he looks there, that is a thing he's going to think. But the fact that they haven't even replaced the window yet, it just like it is a very specific reminder visually of what happened mm-hmm. there. And it gets to the point where he kind of breaks down and like yells at them and from that the sort street, of thing from like- the street. And it's actually, it, again, a little it's on the nose. It's a bit over the top, but I think Dustin Hoffman really makes it work. Mm-hmm. Um, and So there are things like that that I really like. Uh, I will give a little bit of history as I did to you off air. So this is the, (laughs) this movie came out in 2002. Uh, It uh, came out, yes, the year that my father passed away and uh, not of a shooting or anything like that, just of a heart attack. And it happened to be, (laughs) it was, uh, Jen and I saw this film on our second date. Now, I didn't go into it thinking first and foremost, like, oh, I'm grieving. This is a movie about grief. I'll go see this movie and I can relate to it. I wasn't thinking about it in those terms. I was thinking of it as, well, I saw In the Bedroom last year and I liked that a lot. Um, And this has a great cast. Mm -hmm. So 
I'm interested. So I'll go see it. And uh, there's this girl that I like. And so we'll, uh, I'll go see it with her. Failing to remember <laughs> that, oh, yeah, there's stuff going on in my life yes. uh, that is uh, relevant to this. And so we went to see it. And then afterwards. Uh, Did you weep? I didn't. I cried a little bit during mm-hmm. the movie. Um, but uh, afterwards, we went to we went out to dinner and just kind of talked about mm-hmm. that and talked about some other things. And uh, poor Jen. <laughs> we started dating like right after my dad died. Like that has to put some pressure on a person. Mm-hmm. Um, so it uh, also bonds you together. What was that? It just bonds you together. No question about it. No you question. You find about someone it. who wants to go on a second date with a guy who's dealing with this. That says a lot about her. And I remember, this is a hard thing to bring up without getting a little uh, misty-eyed. I remember she she was so invested in helping me through this, mm. um, however she could, that um, like early on, like to the point where we weren't even like a couple, we were just dating. I think um, she presented me with this thing she had gone to the library and she found a book about the grieving process mm. and she had photocopied every page oh wow I, like i don't know why she didn't just buy the book but whatever she photocopied every page and then had it bound and then gave it to me and said like make, maybe this will be maybe this will help I like, like that. Yeah. I like the fact that she photocopied because it almost, it's almost like she made it kind of yeah. the book to give to you yeah and so it's just a very, mm. it was a very cute thing at the time, but also I think it's, it spoke volumes to me. It's like, okay, so the, the stuff I'm going through is not a thing that she, that needs to be dealt with, uh, that needs to be put up with. It's a thing that she is ready to help you with embracing full on, you yeah. know? And it's like, oh, well that's, that's notable. Um, so yeah, Moonlight Mile, uh, is a movie that I think. I think it was informed a lot in its tone by American Beauty, which came out three years before. Hmm. And that is a movie that is a a drama, but it has moments of comedy, but they're more like quirky comedy. It's more like offbeat. It feels like a satire to me, American Beauty. Oh, it definitely is. Uh, I haven't seen it in so long. But but it's also a satire that's, you know, very earnest. that's why and it's like it. and it's hard to know exactly when it's a satire and when it's not. Network, you always know. Um, well, I don't know because there's a, there's all those scenes in Network where it's uh, William Holden and his wife, and those are yeah. played like straight drama. Uh, you say straight drama, I would disagree. They play like melodrama, and when you see and then when you hear William Holden comment on what they're dealing with, yes, in, uh, in movie terms, in movie terms, and in TV terms, and at a distance. But that, it's still it's still it, straight drama to me because anyone in in that field of, of that intelligence level would know about writing. Sure, absolutely. And so this is how he's he's doing the Lewin Davis. He's not actually talking about the thing. He's talking about this construct of who we are. And this is me in this construct. That's a way of distancing yourself from responsibility. No question about and it. And that's but straight. The way it's played and shot is straight. Uh, and I, I still don't necessarily agree. I think Beatrice Strait, as wonderful as her, as her performances as his wife, uh, she won, Oscar an, she won an Oscar for that. Um, for like four minutes on screen. Uh, yeah. You know, and then you have Ned Beatty being nominated for, I think like one scene, one, well, he's in two scenes technically, oh. but he's only in one really notable scene. Mm-hmm. Um, 
that's the brilliance of network and it's one of the reasons why it's so wonderful oh, so um but that's the thing is i uh, sorry we got into network okay, okay. We, we have to move on um so but yeah american beauty i think is has satiric elements but i don't think they quite know how to juggle straight up comedy moments of satire and com- and sincere drama american Ernest beauty or, drama. or this movie uh, American Beauty. Okay. Did I, what did I say? I I, I didn't know. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, I got American distracted. American Beauty. I think is that, and I think it it informed movies for the next few years, where this is a movie that is about grief, but they also try to bring some comedy into it and some goofiness into it and some quirkiness into it. It didn't it. make sense in this movie. What was that? Honest. It didn't make sense because there was there's nothing funny about the premise. There's nothing right. funny about most of the movie, but then there are these no. moments that just sort of like pop out. It's like how am I supposed to what, how do they want me to react to this character who's grieving I think and that's the thing is I think where it comes from it comes from a place of honesty it comes from a place that I can relate to which is when you are in this state there is a certain it sounds crazy there's a certain degree of liberation in the sense that the stuff that you that you previously felt was so important you come to realize is not that important. Mm. And so you are liberated to focus only on the things that matter. And and you're free to be a little bit selfish in those moments. And uh, you know, and it's and in the film it's it's uh, demonstrated with like really on the nose stuff like Susan Sarandon like burning all the grief books that people gave her. Mm-hmm. Now, people gave them to her trying to be helpful but it sounds weird i feel like in the movie and maybe i'm reading into it i don't know you saw it recently for yes. the first time mm-hmm. um there is i think an element of people giving you a grief book and it's and it's worth noting talking about like what jen did she she didn't just buy a book and give it to me she photocopied it mm-hmm. had it bound and then handed it to me and then like followed up saying like oh did you read any of that like what it you know what are yeah. you thinking about you know for her you know literally everything about it just reeked of a personal investment whereas when you buy a book and give it to somebody it's yeah. almost saying like i uh, just read this and that yeah. way uh, i don't have to deal with your grief anymore there's not actual investment in that right outside of you know 20 bucks to buy the book yeah and so um and so, you know, the idea of her like throwing all these books, it has less to do with her being spiteful or anything like that. I think more it has more to do with just, yeah, these people just kind of wanted to, they don't want to deal with what I'm going through and that's fine, but please don't act like you do. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm sure you have experienced this, that, you know, in moments of loss, you get people that say, if you need anything, just let me know. And then you actually do reach out to some, you reach out to people and some people bend over backwards to help. Other people don't really do much. Hmm. And that is, that happened to us a couple of times with uh, some neighbors who were fairly close to our family. Um, Fairly, not tremendously. And my mom reached out for something. I don't, I don't even remember what it was. And the wife said like, said like, oh, you know what, I would love to, but I'm just, oh, we're just so busy right now. And it's like, look, I understand you have your own life, but at the same time, you did say, yes, that's if you need awful. anything, let me know. And it's like, oh, what you what you really meant was if I need like a tray of brownies brought in a week, yeah, then I guess that's who I turn to. Um, or they assume that 
the saying of those words was all they needed to do. Sorry, uh, sort of, yeah. Because yeah. it's a cultural thing. It's like you yeah. don't not say those things. Yeah. You're pretty awful if yeah. you don't say something. I remember Paul F. Tompkins. Oh, that's uh, what people think. I mean, obviously, so many people have said this. It's like the best thing to do is to not say anything. Yeah. I, I hold to that. But still, when you're in that moment, it's hard not to say something. It's hard to just walk up to yeah. somebody and, and look at them in the eye, knowing what they've gone through, and just lean in and hug. Yeah. And then walk away. Yeah. It's because we're verbal people. We want we want to solve it. We want to we want to fix it. Mm-hmm. And there's no fixing it. So it's just like. Uh, maybe there, maybe I can fix it in the future. So if there's anything you need in the future, right. maybe I can fix it then because yeah. I can't fix it now. Yeah. Um, uh, comedian Paul F. Tompkins, uh, I saw him at the UCB Theater many years ago. His mother had just passed away. Hmm. And he was dealing with that on stage and was wow. being very open about it and making jokes about it. And he just talked about, like, there, there are times... And so he was talking with uh, comedian Graham Elwood, uh, who has also who who had also lost people and and they were just going back and forth talking about like the stuff that they wish they could have said to people at the funeral but you're not allowed to socially mm-hmm. like anytime somebody comes up and says hey I'm sorry for your loss um, and so they actually like played this out yeah um, so where Graham would be the the per the the comforter mm-hmm. and Paul would be himself so uh, we'll we'll reenact that right now so I'll be Paul you be the comforter and you say I'm so sorry for your loss. Uh, Tyler, I am so sorry for your loss. Oh, not as sorry as I am. <laughs> and just nice. stuff like that yeah. that you can't you can't say because uh, it's just. Uh, thanks. Yeah. yeah, I'll be over here. Yeah, it's just kind of jerky to say that kind of yeah. thing. But uh, but in those moments, there is a certain spite that can come along, which is nobody understands what it is to be me right now, right. which is true enough. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there is a, a definite loneliness to be found. Uh, in I grief. remember, even though you're not the first person to have lost someone, but sure. in this moment, it is the only thing you see. One of the angriest moments I can recall in my whole life, sitting in the room where my dad had just died in the hospital room, and the nurse comes in, and knowing full well what just transpired, expired, she looks at us without missing a beat, and she says, um, in a moment, I'll, I'll come back, and I'll, I'll take care of dealing with his body. We're like, um, What? I didn't say anything, but I, I just kind of nodded at her because she's kind of looking right at me. Yeah. I just kind of nodded and said, kind of like waved to the door. Yeah. And she left. But I'm like, is she, this is like her first day? Yeah. To, not great to be a nurse? Manner, no, yeah. not at all. It's like, that was so angry. But that, I mean, obviously that's an extreme example. But people do tend to say things that yeah. they don't mean to be. Yeah. They're not in your place and they can't be. Yeah. Mentally and emotionally. Like, so they say, it's always going to be wrong. Yeah. Like when you're past it, it's still like, you look at that and you're like, that's a bad thing to say. But at the same time, you know, I, I can think of that nurse as like, as, oh, I'm sure it's like, they're very sad right now. I'll let them know that like the logistics of this, the practicalities, they don't have to worry about I'll it. take care of that myself. I'll be right back. Don't you worry. Like, that's what she was trying mm-hmm. to say. But <laughs> she just did not the, say it correctly. But, yeah. And, but that's the thing. And even trying to say that. Yeah. Which is, oh, I'm sorry about what just happened. I'll remove this from you immediately. Like yeah. that's not what people yeah. are looking for. It's not right like then. a dirty dish at the restaurant. It's like <laughs> I'm not done with let my just, meal. Yeah, let I'm me like, just clear this for you. Um, you can talk as long as you want, but let me take these dirty dishes away from you. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Brother. And then you know she drops the hospital bill. No pressure. No, no. pressure. You know, stay, stay as long as you, as long want. As you want. Refill. Um, <laughs> um, so uh, 
Yeah, so there are moments like that in Moonlight Mile that that registered as true to me, um, and something, and and I wouldn't be surprised if Brad Silberling was kind of uh, writing from personal experience in that moment. But again, the film. Do you know still, the history of it? Uh, I, you know what? I will tell you now. I will tell the his audience. Gr- his girlfriend died, right? Was that it? It was the actress model Rebecca Schaefer. Okay. Who famously was killed by a stalker in her home, like out, just outside okay. her home. And he was dating her at the time. And that was like 88, 89, somewhere at the end of the 80s. Yeah. And please note, the movie's not out to 2002, so he's been sitting on this for a long time. Yeah. So any of those moments that happened in the movie where I was like, ah, I don't understand the tone of this, I, I, I completely gave him the credit. I'm like, yeah. whatever you want to do with this movie is fine, because I know he wrote it and directed it. So this is his expression of having dealt with a horrible tragedy in his own life. So yeah. do whatever you want to do. I'm, I'm fine with that. Um, that said, it did. Those moments did not register as true to the rest of the movie for me. It was right. just something off about about it, and maybe that has more to do with the actors than it does his directing. Uh, You're talking maybe. about Justin Hoffman; he's going to do whatever he wants to do. That's, up to a point. That's true. Um, I think his performance is probably my favorite. It's in a great, the film. great. Performance. Um, Susan Sarandon winds up being kind of this combination of things. Uh, where there are times when she's kind of this no-nonsense broad, she's going to say what she's going to say, <laughs> and there's almost a quirk to her. And um, Yeah, so it's a film that in retrospect, I mean, it, it, in my own life, it has a, a special place in my heart, but, uh, you know, and but I, I have no illusions about it being a great movie. Mm-hmm. But it does, there are moments like with the plate glass window and certain character moments that feel very... Very real to me. There's a couple of things about it that, in, in the context of of knowing who wrote and directed sure. it, uh, are are interesting to me. One is that clearly, I th- I think that the Jake Gyllenhaal character is p- sort of his representative sure. in the movie because he's the one who is the fiance of this woman. Yeah. Um, but but the writer Brad Silberling uh, has decided that. The, the twist in the plot is that that the that Gyllenhaal and the now deceased girl had had actually broken it off before, yeah. and the parents don't know this and so the a big part of the movie is them discovering this or him yeah. confessing to this and so it's strange to me that he would allow the character that's representative of him, of him to have already separated from that woman yeah and also there's through the whole movie there's like this romantic comedy trying to bust out from the bottom it's like it's like you know the meet cute in the bar. You know right. he's playing her song accidentally, and and uh, and so they meet and they you know they begin a relationship that yeah. then is you know past the end of the movie is them. You know they they yeah. make something happen, and that's just interesting to me that he would allow that his expression of his grief over this loss in his life to be this. It's like it's almost like, or maybe as I'm saying it out loud, it does make sense because by the time he's made this movie, he's probably moved on in a big way. And so he's letting the character do that before the movie ever starts. It's like the backstory is he's already moved on. And I do wonder if that choice, because yes, I think I, I think shortly after I saw the film, I think I looked it up and and saw that uh, his girlfriend mm-hmm. had uh, died violently, and and it got me thinking at the time. Uh, now I haven't seen it as recently as you have, so uh, perhaps the idea. I'll correct you. Okay, please do. Um, I'm the primary host of the show, so, you know, just uh, choose your words carefully. Uh, perhaps his choice to have these characters in the process of a breakup, which then 
you know, and then one of them dies. And so it's just like, well, we're not even totally emotionally separated yet, but we're in the process. It, it places the Gyllenhaal character in a state of guilt on top yes. of merely mourning. And, and I'm sure the guilt is made worse by the fact that now he's interested in this other woman. And I wonder if, you know, if, if Jen were to die, I'm sure that eventually I would probably find somebody else. I feel like it'd probably be several years before mm -hmm. I even started looking. But in those moments, even if it, if, even if the initial sting of loss had gone away, I feel like those first few dates, maybe even the first few months would be difficult for of me. Of course. And I would feel guilty and I would feel like I'm being, you know, uh, cheating on her and like I'm cheating on her and that like, no, 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 unfaithful. I like to my first love was Jen. I'm being, un yeah, I'm being unfaithful to her memory. Um, you know, is it just like, oh, okay, well, I'll just uh, throw it. It's like, well, she's gone, so on to the next one. You know, I would feel very callous mm -hmm. in those moments. Now, I'm sure I would get past that, as I think you would need to. But um, I wonder if, you know, because he'd had some time, so undoubtedly he found somebody new and, and that sort of thing. But I wonder if he was, in his own way, in a way that was specific to the character, it's like, how do I add guilt to this and if it's simply that, well, we were going to get, in, we were engaged, we were going to get married, everything was fine, then she died, and now it's just pure mourning. Okay, that's interesting. But what if there's this other element that will, that will encompass some of the grief that I, uh, sorry, some of the guilt that I feel years later that I'm being maybe disloyal or, or unfaithful to, you know, my, dead girlfriend's memory. Uh, it might be that, I don't know, maybe I'm over, it's entirely possible I'm overthinking it. Maybe he was conscious of it, maybe he's not. Um, it could also be one of those things that, so I'll go ahead and, this is a weird thing to say. Um, in the past, like when I have like, look, and this is a very, very common thing I've come to realize when I've told other people, um, when I have like looked at porn while being married, mm -hmm. And like Jen's out of the house or something, in my mind, I feel like I'll bet she's gonna get in a car accident and die. Like there's no question about it. There has to be and, retribution and, for my ex. Yeah. Or just this idea of to think that I'm doing this at the moment that she's dying. Oh. That I'm doing something so wrong. Not not merely morally, not merely spiritually, but relationally. I'm mm -hmm. doing something that distances myself from her yeah. at the moment of her death. Like the guilt would be tremendous. Not even necessarily feeling responsible for it. That's an abstract kind of guilt that I think I could get past easily. But it's more just, you know, in the same way that like if if we if she were to die while we were fighting, you know, not like in the moment, but like I left because you know what? I can't deal with this right now. And then something happened and she died and we hadn't made a certain piece with that. Like I would feel that kind of guilt. Sure. So I do think from a character standpoint, it is an interesting choice. Mm -hmm. And I think it incorporates other elements of grief that, you know, I don't feel any guilt over my father's death. Why would I? Um, but I think when it's a spouse and even if you have, uh, or a girlfriend or whatever, uh, romantic relationship, 
and you have some, even if you have some distance on it, you can think back to how you felt maybe the first time you went yeah. on a on a date with someone new. And I think he was maybe trying to capture that. I think um, it feels like the movie needs uh, like a Star Wars style crawl at the beginning. Sure. Where it describes what <laughs> happened to Brad Silberling, who made the movie you're about to see. Sure. Because without knowing, I, I'm just sort of like, I'm thinking if I didn't know this about the guy who made this movie, I would think, what a weird thing to do. I mean, shouldn't this be about his grief over the girlfriend? Why has he already moved on? Is he just avoiding yeah. it? Um, but the other thing about the movie, I, I mentioned earlier a couple of things, that the context of the making of the movie kind of makes me wonder about or think about. The second thing is the fact that in that courtroom scene at the end, w- when the uh, the killer is sitting there, mm-hmm. um, and he's portrayed, I don't know who the actor is, but he's portray- portrayed as a person who might have just accidentally done it or something. I mean, I, he right. did it willfully, but there's something regretful about that guy's performance in a believable way. Not in a, yeah. I'm in a courtroom. I should probably woo the jury. It was. It's more like inside of this character is a real sadness yeah. and uh, guilt that he's done this. His wife is the killer's wife is even in in the courtroom as well, and they look, and there's still love between them, and they're both just very feeble-looking people. Yeah. And Gyllenhaal himself is is on the stand talking about his ex-fiance. And is basically being asked by Holly Hunter's character, his lawyer, to paint a picture right. of of this girl, of this woman, so that everyone can know who it is we're talking about. And yeah. then the jury will know, and then they'll side with us. Well, he can't do it. It's like an ethical question for him. It's like, yeah. I can't really lie about the status of our relationship at the time of her death. And so that, there's that ethical sort of uh, strain to, the, to that ending. But also there's this... Real knowing that it's about what Brad Silberling himself went through, there's this real quality of forgiveness. Yeah, there it's like Gyllenhaal himself is like, you know what? I'm looking at this guy because he keeps looking at him, and the lawyer is like whispering to him, which is really odd because that would never happen. Hey, you need to pay attention to the question I'm asking you. You know this kind of thing, and he and but he can't keep his eyes off this guy who killed yeah. his fiance, and there's a look on his face. You know that he feels bad for the guy. Yeah. Um, as maybe found some sort of level of forgiveness just by seeing him there in the courtroom. Yeah. Almost a pathetic quality to him. And, and indeed, he, does, he doesn't say, I forgive you for killing my fiancé, but the, the, the movie lets you forgive him. Yeah. Uh, lets the characters forgive them and, and lets us forgive him. But that's another thing that if I was just watching the movie, I would think is a kind of a cheat. Yeah. But knowing that it's been 13, 14, 15 years since the event happened in his own life... And that there was a decade of him grieving or moving through his grief and coming to a point where whoever this person was that killed yeah. Rebecca Schaefer, my girlfriend at the time, who I loved, you know, he's a person too. He's, he was unbalanced. He, part of him didn't know what he was doing, driven by forces beyond his own control. And he's, you know, he's moved through all of that to a point where he can kind of let this killer in his movie about his own grief be forgiven. Yeah. And that's an amazing thing to me. It, it doesn't make sense in the context of the movie, but it makes sense in the context of the making of the movie. You know, I feel like so many of our issues with the film would have been fixed if it ha- if if the events took place a year after. Hmm. You know what I mean? Like our our issue is yeah. how could he get to that place of forgiveness so quickly? Exactly. How could he get to a place where he wants to date this other woman so quickly? If it's a year out, 
then it's it's about things like okay well this is still hanging on but i feel like i need to move on but i feel guilty about it you know but i actually have some distance on it and i forgive this guy now like i feel like you if you do that if you get some distance on it i think a lot more of this stuff not necessarily works itself out, but it makes a bit more sense. You know what? A, a movie that kept coming to mind, and I actually watched pieces of it this morning. All I could find was like this bizarre, bizarro-looking YouTube version of it. But I, I was watching bits of The Fisher King, hmm. which oh, is, yeah. oh my gosh, it's uh, thematically it's so similar, except it's it's kind of turned on its head. It's like the guy that's on trial in the movie, yeah. in our movie, Moonlight Mile. It's kind of what Jeff Bridges' character is because he feels responsible for having, yeah. just sort of indirectly, for Robin Williams' wife being shot. Yeah. Because he, he was, if you remember, he was a, a radio kind of a, yeah, like a, shock, a shock jock. A shock jock, yeah. And so he was like saying, like, these yuppies, they deserve to die. And he's talking to a person on the phone when he says this. And that person mm-hmm. goes off and shoots up a bar. Yeah. And uh robin williams's wife is in there and robin williams kind of goes off the deep end becomes a guy who lives in somebody's the basement of a building and uh has this mission in his life to to find the the, um the holy grail yeah and so that whole movie is about is about jeff bridges character the shock jock he finds robin williams and sees a way that he can actually gain some sort of redemption or salvation away or like away from his own guilt yeah. by fixing Robin Williams up with this other person, this woman. And it was just fascinating to watch that in the context of having seen both of these movies now, uh, Lewin Davis and Moonlight Mile, and how they're in these sort of situations, in the situation that we started the, you know, the conversation today with, the, the whole Orlando thing, there are several sides. There's the parent side, the yeah. grief side, there's the, the lives that were cut short, and there there is actually the guy who did it yeah, and his whole story. And we yeah. currently we're looking at this guy as like the worst kind of person on the planet because of what he did and the, the kind of views he seemed to hold and the way he meted out his anger on, on all these people is a horrible yeah. thing. At some point, anyone who's dealing with that new story, if I can be that crass just to call it that, if they really want to think about it, if they want, really want to deal with the consequences of what happened, which I have not, as I admitted right. at the beginning – they have to come to some kind of terms with the fact that this was still a human being who did this. Yeah. A human being with all kinds of things that influenced who he was. Yeah. Bad and good. And he made a decision that he was going to do this. And where do we as Christians fit in with like that part of the story, that, that yeah. Jeff Bridges side of the story? Can we actually find it in our hearts to like forgive on behalf of those people that were murdered or those parents who are grieving? I don't know. I can't. I can't do that sitting here right now thinking about what happened. Yeah. But I think that's kind of what we're supposed to do. Yeah. And the fact that the the shooter in Orlando was killed, it sort mm-hmm. of saves me from having to think about that part. Mm-hmm. But there are plenty that are taken into custody. and Aurora. Aurora. Um, and you see photos of them and they look so unrepentant. Oh, absolutely. You know? And, crazy. and admittedly a little bit crazy too. Mm-hmm. And if they're straight up crazy, then it's like, well, they're crazy. What are you going to do? Um but if there's simply unrepentance, uh, if I mean, obviously there is a brokenness to them. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that. But at the same time, there's a brokenness to everybody, and we don't do those things. Um, but uh, and so when you see, it's like, oh, this person, like this person, is alive, mm-hmm. and so many other people are not. 
the very fact of that makes it hard to forgive. You know, that's what makes Charleston so incredibly moving mm-hmm. and powerful. Is these people who were grieving, they're freshly grieving. Yeah, freshly. This just happened. Yeah, this guy's like being arraigned or whatever it is, and and they look at the guy and they say, "We forgive you. God loves you, and we love you." And yeah. Obviously, we wish this didn't happen, but they're sure. standing in front of the guy that just took away their loved one, and they're able to say this. I don't know how that happens, except God. Well, and that's and in that moment, part of me feels like how it's like they can't really feel this, right? Like they can't this is actually. For show. Yeah, well, not even for show. It's more just this is a decision they're making. It's mm-hmm. not I for I have forgiven you, and I don't you know. And I don't feel this pain or this anger, this rage towards you anymore. Mm-hmm. It, I th- because in that moment, I feel like that can't be true. It's more just, I feel like it's more of a, a statement of intent of, I am not going to hold this against well, you. I might at the moment, but I, but let's be honest, I'm not forgiveness is not about forgive, forgive and forget, like right. culturally is believed. It's like, it, right. it is an ongoing thing that starts with a yeah. decision yeah. that is often a, just a spoken word that you might not necessarily feel. It's like love when you're having a bad day exactly. with your wife. It's like, I love you. Mm, I, I do love you. Yes. I'm convincing myself right now yes. that I love you. Um, I'm convincing myself standing in front of you who took my loved one away that I forgive you. Yeah. I don't know if I believe it completely, but I have to. Because God loves me and forgave me. Right. And that's unbelievable. You can even say it out loud. Yeah. But that's the beginning of their own healing process is the ability to say it even if maybe they don't really understand what that could possibly mean down the road yeah. or how to even do it. So we do need to move on. I have a number of things to to read here that uh, that will address some of the stuff that we're talking about in regards to tragedy and loss and that sort of thing. Um, so... Uh, there's a uh, again the simplicity and the nuance of the Coen Brothers dialogue is fascinating because they can do great things with dialogue and other and other times like in Fargo it's you know and here you are and it's a beautiful day such a standard line of dialogue said just right at the right moment and it is the most beautiful piece of dialogue I've ever heard mm-hmm. you know um, and in that same way there's a part in Inside Lewin Davis where he just simply says I'm tired I thought I just needed a night's sleep but it's more oh, than oh man that. I wrote that down too really I love it it was after but it was when I was fast forwarding through parts of it this morning mm-hmm. and I saw that line yeah. or I heard that line in the context of what you said you want to talk about with regard to the movie yeah. I was like that is exactly that's a definition of grief right there yeah I thought I just needed some rest but it's more than that and he doesn't say anything beyond that he says yeah we know what it is. Yeah. He doesn't seem aware of it. Yeah. And just the, the, this feeling of like, I, I thought I needed just a quick thing. Yeah. A night, a good night's sleep. Then I'll be right as rain. Mm-hmm. Ugh, it's more than that. And then he, and then he classifies it as tired, you know, and just, he doesn't say, I thought I was tired, but it's more than that. It's, I am tired. Hmm. I thought, a night's sleep would do me, would fix it, but it's more than that. The tiredness is deeper yeah. than physical. Um, so, I, yeah, I love that line. And then there's a, a line from uh, Moonlight Mile I like where he says, where Jake Gyllenhaal's character says, I went to a place where nothing's right, where every moment's backwards, every sky is without color, without hope. And specifically, Sky Without Color uh, reminded me of Inside Lewin Davis. Oh. Um, but that there is that idea of like, when you're in this place, I, like I can, I'm, I'm picturing the families of like the victims in Orlando. 
they're living in a world where nothing is right. Every moment is backwards. This yeah. is not how this happens. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and even the way I, at this point, describe my uh, my response when my mom told me about uh, my dad, uh, my my initial like my I was confused. My initial response was confusion mm. because at first I thought she was talking about her dad, my grandpa even though she had given no indication of that, but my mind literally could not function in that moment well enough to understand what she was talking about because she was, she was speaking against what is factually correct. What's factually correct is that my dad is alive. Your dad might die because that's what older people do. Obviously, you know, it's, that's the order of things. Your dad will die before mine, obviously. Um, and it's like, this is something that happens. And it, there's a thing I said, I think, later on that evening. I was talking with David. I said, this is something that happens to other people. This doesn't mm-hmm. happen to me. Mm-hmm. And that's a thing that I've, you know, I've, I've heard people whose parents get divorced and they say that. It's like, no, no, no. My friend's parents are divorced. Yeah. My parents are together. And it's just, uh, it's just this, the world just is wrong. Everything is wrong in it's that moment. It's destruction of safety yeah. because yeah. you feel safe. Yeah. And the illusion that the things that you have around you are permanent. Yeah. And you feel not safe when suddenly someone comes along and says, that thing is gone now. Yeah. You don't, you don't get that anymore. Oh, feel unsafe. Um, okay. So I'm going to, we're going to go through these. Feel free to comment as you want. Uh, I will provide a comment for this one. Uh, so this is also from CS Lewis, uh, grief observed. The The death of a beloved is amputation. I'll get to this. Uh, I'll, I'll come back to that in a moment. For in grief, nothing says stays. Pu- uh, nothing stays put. One keeps on emerging from a phase, but it always recurs, round and round. Everything repeats. Am I going in circles, or dare I hope I am on a spiral? But if a spiral, am I going up it or down it? Uh, how often will it be for always? How often will the vast emptiness astonish me like a complete novelty and make me say, I never realized my loss till this moment. The same leg is cut off time after time. I love the way he writes that. And I think it does speak to the cyclical nature of grief, which speaks tremendously to the structure of Inside Lewin Davis. Absolutely. Um, the fact that his, like, it seemed almost experimental the way uh, the film is structured and the fact that his life does seem to just repeat itself over and over again um, with some slight variances, uh, variations um, that are worth noting before, yeah, as far as the, end, the beginning of the film and the end. Like, you see a, a certain change in him, uh, at the very least with what he has learned in regards to keeping that cat in the apartment. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Uh, so we'll move on from there. Uh, Lamentations. I don't read a lot from Lamentations, but uh, it seems appropriate. Uh, Agreed. Given the circumstances. Um, for no one... So there's Lamentations 3, verses 31 through 33. For no one, no one is cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love. For he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. That willingly throws me. Uh, Especially because in the same verse he says, though he brings grief. Yeah. What? Yeah, he'll bring affliction. Uh, he will not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone, but earlier it says he brings grief. So how do we make this work? I don't know. Mm, cyclical. It's, yeah. With variations. One could say, contra- one could say contradictory. Yeah. Um, and and I don't necessarily think it's that, uh, but 
it does speak to this idea of why would God allow this to happen? Um, and the answer is, I, I don't know. Um, you can't know why God allows, you know, it's, I'll, I'll quote the terrible movie Twister, um, where you see the, the tornado skip that house, mm. skip that house and then hit yours. How does that happen? You know, it's a thing that, uh, it feels crass to keep talking about my father in light of what people have lost, you know, like he died at 50 of a heart attack. Now that's sad and it made me sad, but compared to, you know, people in their twenties being violently killed and their last moments were fearful. That seems so much worse to me. Um, so I'm sorry to keep associating the two, except that this is no, the only association I have. Feel sorry for for associating the two because what we're talking about is loss, and uh, the death of your father at the time that it happened, especially, is as much something extremely dear being forced off of you or pulled out of you as as what happened to those people. It's the same end result, which is a horrible thing that should not have happened. Yeah, and I, when it comes right down to it, because I've had this conversation with people before, which is like, what? Uh, and, I, and this is going to sound more debatey than I would like it to. I apologize. Um, this idea of, well, what would you like God to have done? Make the gun not fire, put it in somebody's mind to stop this guy, make you know change the guy's mind at the last minute, whatever it is. And then, okay. But then what do you, did you also want him to intervene with the singer? Did you also want him to intervene from that alligator yep. that killed Orlando. a two year old? Did you want him to, or to intervene in Orlando? Do you want him to intervene, uh, in natural disasters? Now, of course, yes. The answer is Yes. Then you get to, did you want him to intervene when my father died? Do you want him to intervene with, you know, guest of the show, Will Gray, who died of cancer a few mm-hmm. years ago? Like, where does it, where does it ultimately end? Well, and our, our pastor has brought this up when there was actually a, a suicide, a couple of suicides in our church, mm-hmm. um, that the issue is death the issue is loss. Like we don't, it's not how things are supposed to be. Like it, eternity is what we're supposed to be thinking in terms of. And it's what it's, we're supposed to be in communion, in communion with God. We are a a fallen people. And with that comes death. And with that comes illness and violence and brutality. And, there are moments when a person can be miraculously saved from those things, and that's marvelous. But the only way for God to make sure that none of this ha- that you know that this doesn't happen, the only way that we can be saved from grief is for death to be gone completely. It's true. And while physically that is not the case, spiritually that is the case. Um, because and I'm sure this, maybe this won't bring any comfort to anybody, but you know, 
Jesus did die. He fell prey to this in a very brutal way. He fell prey to the same thing that we all must at some point. But that wasn't the end of the story because God can't die. You know, you were talking about this idea of like lasting, lasting forever. Nothing lasts forever. Mm-hmm. We, we feel like it should. We feel like it will. Even if we know it won't, we feel like it will. And then when we're faced with the fact that it is, in fact, only temporary, it throws us for a loop. Well, the only thing that isn't temporary is God and eternity. And so he cannot die. And so to connect ourselves with God isn't, it doesn't mean that we're going to be free of suffering in this world. Mm-hmm. Um, it simply means that it will be, that we'll have an idea in the long run of how to respond to it. You know, we might feel despair and hopelessness in the moment and it's understandable. Um, but I'll bring this on John nine verses one through three. As he went along, he saw a blind man. He, in this case is Jesus, by the way. Uh, As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. I will quickly jump to a quote by Mr. Rogers. (laughs) And uh, I looked it up. He did actually say this. I saw it on Snopes. It was not uh, it wasn't some just a meme. Thing. It was not just a meme. It's a real thing. Fred Rogers, noted Christian, said, "When I was a boy, I would see scary things in the news. Uh, when I was a boy, and I would see scary things in the news, my mother would say to me, "Look for the helpers. You will always find people who are helping." So. While we, you know, while we're thinking eternally, we ourselves, like, if if something doesn't happen to us, if if it happens to somebody else, we do have the option of saying, "If you need anything, let me know," and then actually following up on that. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, in some cases, and this is dicey, I don't say this lightly. In some cases, maybe you don't necessarily wait for somebody to ask for help. It might be a situation where somebody loses something. They lose a a parent or a child or a spouse. And you say, if you need anything, let me know. And then they don't reach out to you. And, you know, let's say you're close friends. You know, if you're an acquaintance, it makes sense that they wouldn't reach out to you because they'll probably talk to their closer friends first. But let's say it's a close friend and you're not hearing from them. You could say they'll reach out if they need to, or you could just send them a text and saying, Hey, how you doing? Do you want me to come over? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, do you need help? I know it sounds weird, but like, do you need help cleaning your house? Do you need me to go get you some groceries? Do you need, you know, I know it's small, but it, it's, that's what it looks like. You're not trying to fix what they're going through. Yeah. You're trying to fix all the other stuff that they can't deal with because they're going through it's, this. Uh, Aubrey and I, recently uh, actually 2016 has been kind of rough for us in terms of trying to make babies you know we want to have a family we've had a couple of really uh sad setbacks to put it as lightly as i can and in those times we've had 
too many people in the best possible way saying, we want to help you. Right. Um, and they've been doing, they, they've done exactly what you're recommending here, which is, it's less, let me know what I can do. And it's more, I want to bring you something. Let me bring you some food. And yeah. before, like, we had like four days of not having to look in, at the kitchen. Yeah. And it was like, and it was great because, because the purpose of that isn't to uh, appease their own sense of like needing to help. It's, I think that the people that were doing that were aware of the fact that to be free of that basic requirement per day, yeah. to have to think about what to fix, to then fix it and yeah. then to clean up after it, disallows you to be sad. Yeah. And they know that to be sad is what you need to be. Yeah. Because that's what grieving is. It's like living and basically embracing the horror of what happened yeah. or the sadness or any of that kind of thing. So it's like, that's how we received it as well. It's just that, ah, bring it on. Yeah. Because we, not that we want to sit around just like moping or being sad, but it's like, yeah, it, it will be nice to just be able to look at each other, sit next to each other, watch a movie, not have to worry about that. Yeah. Um, not have to worry about the, the food. Yeah. But be with each other in our sadness. And that's really all you can do. And, and you hear stories about what's happening in Orlando and the idea of people like lining up to donate blood yes. and that the line was like eight hours long. Mm-hmm. And then you hear about, and I'm not saying this for any political reason, it's just a thing that I saw, that Chick-fil-A stayed, open, that. stayed open on Sunday to provide free food. Not usually open on Sundays. Not usually open on Sunday for, you know, on principle but they they put that principle aside because mm-hmm. there's something else going on. Right. Um, so they provided free food for the people standing in line. Now I recognize that you say Chick Fil A and gay in the same uh, yeah, paragraph, and it's and it's a problem. Uh, so I'm not trying to say that, but like I'm not trying to say, oh, Chick Fil A is a wonderful thing. But they did a good thing in this moment, mm-hmm. and they could have just said like, well, we don't open on Sundays. That's how it works. Sorry, guys. You know. And and this is even just like they weren't even like providing food to like the victims' families because that would be a weird thing. That it'd be weird to try to do that. Yeah, be like, hey, how you doing? I don't know if you like Chick Fil A or not, but here's some free food. <laughs> um, but people need blood, so people are going to donate blood. But the line's super long, but they don't want to get out of line to get food. Yeah. So problem solved here. Like there are so many levels of helping that can be done here. And, and I think that is, so when, when we see this idea of like, when the disciple said, Hey, this guy's blind. So who did something wrong? Right. Him or his parents? And you said, neither, neither one. This is a thing that happened and it mm. sucks. I'm paraphrasing. Yeah. It's a thing that happened and it sucks. That's the original Greek, isn't it? Yeah. It's, <laughs> uh, but it happened so that. And it and it sounds it sounds somehow wrong to talk about this. That it happened so that people could step up, other people could help this person, and find something in themselves, and then assist this person. So this person finds something in humanity. Now it should be noted this happens right before Jesus heals the person. Um, well, so I, which is not a thing we are able to do. You said uh, it, it happened so that there's there's a, that phrase, phrasing, yeah. bothers me because I don't think that it. I don't have any like 
verses to stand on necessarily, but just just gut feeling is like in trying to figure out why is there evil in the world, right? And and you might say, well, it's so that you know I can so that I can grow. Yeah, it's I don't know if it's if it's so that it's that thing is going to exist, that terrible thing is going to exist, right. and there's a way to react to it. Yes. One way to react to it is to is to stick your head in the ground like an ostrich and for, and try to you know forget that there's right. evil in the world. Right. Uh, the other way is to engage it head on by being good and and right and true anyway, right. and to not let it make you bitter or angry. I think of my brother. My mm-hmm. brother's like my brother's like mentally handicapped and physically handicapped, yeah. and I don't think to myself, well, he's that way so that I can understand what unconditional love is. Right. I think my brother is that way, and if I could swear now, I would. Um, I wish that he wasn't that way. Right. But he is that way, and here's a way that I am because he is that way. Right. I have learned something about life because of the way he is, but he's not that way by design right. in order to teach me that. Because that's yeah. like, to think that way is like the ultimate selfishness. It's like all this evil stuff over here is no. so that I can shine as a better person, you know? And, you know, uh, and, and in summing it up the way that, that I did, I think I was actually paraphrasing a verse that I had just read. And it is different because here's, here's what it says. This happens so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Mm-hmm. Now, this often jumps immediately to works of us and what we as, as Christians or as human beings will try to do for one another. And like in moments of tragedy, we can learn a great deal. Um, but it does seem rather callous on God's part. It's like, all right, I'm really going to screw this guy over here yeah. so that this other guy can learn something, uh, can learn a valuable life lesson. Yeah. That is, that's, I think the, the reason that I, that I jumped to that is because it's a much more tangible thing. What does it mean? Uh, the works of God might be displayed in him. I have no idea. I have some. I have some idea that I won't necessarily speculate on right now because I don't want to uh, go into an area that I am not prepared to discuss. Mm-hmm. Um, which is the idea in the most in the broadest possible term, the idea of of uh, last shall be first, and and God made people being made perfect in their right. weakness and that sort of thing, and that uh, that Jesus is. I won't say champion, but like he came to save everyone, but he came into a society and specifically dealt with the people that were the lowest in society. Right. And so I think it could have something to do with that. But anyway, sure. That's a, another mm-hmm. episode. Um, but that's the thing is if nothing else, it might not be a situation where these things happen so that the rest of us can step up and, uh, it's that these things happen, so we should step up. There you go. Yeah, like two separate sentences, right? Not a comma. Period. Okay. Um, because that is whatever that might mean. It could just mean, quite frankly, it could just mean you know when you live in Los Angeles, there's not much you can do in Orlando, so it might just mean donating money to a certain mm. a certain cause. It might mean voting a certain way, quite frankly, and that's where the idea of trying to prevent this from happening in the future could come into play. But in regards to this specific tragedy, yeah. you know, I guess you could I guess you could look up like what is needed. Cuz sometimes it's, you know, uh like in the case of a hurricane or something like that, care packages for families that have been displaced 
that's needed. So yeah. you can put money towards that or you can actually send stuff, whatever it is. And so, you know, and, and already it just feels so big and like, surely I can't do anything. You can do something. Everyone can do something. And it might not be the biggest thing. It might not make the same difference that like a millionaire getting involved could make, but it will make some difference. Um, it's the starfish thing. Starfish thing. Yeah. The, there's the story of, uh, two brothers walking along the beach and, uh, there had just been, uh, like not a tidal wave or something like that, but just, uh, a big storm that had caused like hundreds of starfish to be, to be washed up on the beach. And so, um, the younger brother starts throwing starfish back into the water. And then the older brother says, there are hundreds of starfish here. You're not going to be able to, you know, you're not going to be able to get them all. And the younger brother says, yeah, I know. And then he picks up another starfish and throws it. And then the older brother says, well, then what difference does it make? Younger brother picks up, picks up one, throws it in and says, well, it made a difference to that one. <laughs> You know, which is kind of a joke, but at the same time, it's true, sure. which is, yeah, you can't solve everything, but you might be able to do something for one person. And right. that's sometimes that has to be enough. Um, so uh, I do want to mention the so there's these last two verses, Second Corinthians one verses eight through nine. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And I, I, I like the despair, followed with the hope. And then here is the last thing. Matthew 24, verse 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So that speaks to the temporary versus the eternal that we're mm -hmm. talking about. So I feel like we've bounced around quite a bit. Um, you know, we've talked about tragedy. We've talked about grief and loss. And we talked about what the Bible has to say about that. Um, there are no easy answers to any of this. No. Um, there is really only reliance, reliance on one another and trying to be unselfish when we help, when we try, when we attempt to help people that are going through this. Um, giving yourself permission if you are going through this to actually go through it and not just push it to the side. Um, and then also just recognizing that, and I'll say this despite the fact that for me, it doesn't often bring a great deal of comfort, but it, it might to somebody. So I'm going to say it. Um, you know, God grieves when we grieve. God looks at the events of Orlando and grieves over it. And I know some people would say, well, he doesn't, he shouldn't grieve because he had the power to stop it and he mm -hmm. didn't. I don't know why he didn't. But it could be, and I, and I wish I could come up with an analogy about parenthood, you know, and the idea of letting your, ch your children make their own terrible mistakes. Um, even though you know that if they do this, bad things are going to happen to them. I should step in, but I can't control them their whole lives. Otherwise they're not free people. Um, now if somebody, if somebody's child in that situation goes on to do something terrible, undoubtedly the parent will, you know, feel responsible, but I don't know. It's, and someone would say, well, you should have done something. And it's like, well, that's, <laughs> 
it kills me that I, I I am their parent, but it doesn't mean that I that they are robots. Right. I'm sorry to bring up the robot analogy, but like, um, I'm not gonna, I can't control every single person's actions, and I'm not going to because that's not what this relationship is about. And I don't know. Maybe I'll cut all this out. I don't like it. Um, you know what I mean? Don't. Don't what? Don't cut it out. Ugh. I hate it. No. I hate what I'm saying. <laughs> uh, maybe I'll leave it in so people can understand just how frustrating it is to do this show sometimes. Well, it is. I mean, because the, the, the key thought that you started that with was that there are no easy answers. Yeah. And as long as there are no easy answers, there's no way to end the paragraph that you're talking, that you're That's saying. That's true. But that's fine because that's true. That's the truth of what you're saying. Well, and it's and it speaks to the loop that we're talking about, the yeah. loop that Lewin Davis is in, the loop that C.S. Lewis is talking about. That just when you start to think like, okay, I've got an analogy that works as to why God might allow this. Okay, yeah, but what about this? Because exactly. parents are human mm-hmm. and limited. God is not, so He could do this. Yeah, it's a and vicious it's loop, like, and, and then you, it's, and then you an come answer. back to it, and you just keep going around and around, and so rather than get into that loop as I started to, it's best to maybe sidestep it. And once again, say something that at, I don't mean to say that this gives me no hope, but it's something that I struggle with that in the end, like we do need to trust that God is in control and that God and that Christ has redeemed us and that the pain and suffering of this life is only temporary as horrible as it might be right now it is only temporary and that if we trust in him we will eventually be uh well with him which is to say with eternal joy and relationship and that kind of thing i say amen to that sure all right everybody sorry this wasn't the best episode what are you talking about i don't know i'm not happy with it uh, maybe I won't even post it. That's not Come true. Come on. We, we spent two hours on this. I'm going to post it. Um, two hours, wow. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah, uh, feel free to email me, Tyler, at morethanonelesson.com. If you have any thoughts, feel free to comment on this if you had any thoughts. Um, you know, and whether you agree or disagree, I'm fine with that. Uh, you know, we talked about some pretty in-depth stuff today. Um, and if you're, you know, if you're in your own stage of, uh, of grief uh, about something, um, you know, feel free to chime in and say how you're feeling and say like, sure. What, not what people, you know, who read the blog or look at the podcast uh, or listen to the podcast, not what they can do for you. Cause there's probably not much they can do for you, but in general, like I've been through this and this is what has helped me. So for future reference, if you're dealing with someone who's going through something, maybe this could help. So feel free to throw that out there if you want. Um, I think we'll go ahead and leave it there because we have to leave it somewhere. Uh, Robert, thank you so much for being here. You got it. Thank you guys for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye.